I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. This podcast is an exploration of ghostly folklore and its relationship to the cultures that produce it. I don't know where or when you are listening to this, but I hope that it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 68, The Myrtles Plantation. The plantations of the American South are often romanticized with notions of the genteel Southern aristocracy, the Southern belle who was always a gracious host and always hospitable to strangers, and homes that would not be out of place in the European countryside were they not simply so American. One can imagine being a guest in one of the plantation's owner's homes, being provided a cool drink on a warm, humid afternoon by a servant, and then relaxing as you see the work being done in the fields while you lounged in the shade on the veranda. But, of course, this is a myth of the past. The plantations were homes, yes, but they were primarily places of business. They were the engines of a southern agricultural industry, including the highly lucrative cotton industry, and the workers were not paid laborers. They were an enslaved workforce, held in chattel slavery. While slavery took a number of forms in the Americas since 1492, not all of which are acknowledged as slavery despite meeting the criteria, chattel slavery was, by far, its most dehumanizing and cruel shape, and the one that has had the longest-lasting repercussions with its negative effects still being felt over a century and a half after it ended. The servant bringing you that cold drink would have been the property of the plantation owner to do with and treat as they pleased. And the same is true of the workers in the fields. None were there of their own accord. None were free to find other work elsewhere. And the laws of the country were devised to ensure that they had little to no chance of ever improving their lot. To understand the nature of ghost stories, and especially ghost tourism at America's plantations, it is necessary to understand that the entire plantation system existed because of slavery. Without slavery, agriculture, especially cotton agriculture, would have looked very different. And without a need to later justify or play down slavery as well as to promote lost cause mythology about the Civil War, the plantations would not be romanticized. But I'm getting ahead of myself. It is common for plantations to be haunted. Indeed, as Elena Pirock explains in her work, it is common for many prominent homes in the American South, both urban and rural, to be haunted. But plantations play a special role in the supernatural ecosystem. In this episode, I want to talk about one specific plantation, the Myrtles Plantation. Located in St. Francisville, Louisiana, the Myrtles now consists of part of the grounds and many of the buildings that were part of a plantation that lasted from the late 18th century up through the mid-19th century. However, in addition to the historic buildings, there is also a lot of more recent construction and landscaping to enhance the tourist experience. The Myrtles serves as a bed and breakfast, a restaurant, an event venue, and a historic home open for tours. Built in 1796 by David Bradford, a lawyer and former general, and originally named Laurel Grove, 
the plantation thrived. David Bradford died in 1808, and his widow Elizabeth ran the plantation until 1817, at which time she handed it over to her son-in-law, Clark Woodruff, who was married to her daughter Sarah. In the 1820s, Sarah and their children died of poisoning. When his mother-in-law, Elizabeth, died in 1831, Charles Woodruff left the house but did not sell it until 1834. It was purchased by Ruffin Gray Sterling, who moved in with his wife, Mary Catherine Cobb. It was the Sterlings who renamed the plantation the Myrtles, due to the crepe myrtle trees that grew in the general area. They remodeled the house, doubling its size, filled it with modern furniture, ensuring that they would be the most fashionable family to reside, not just in this house, but in the region. Ruffin Sterling died in 1854 and left the plantation to his wife. During the Civil War, much of the fine furnishings in the house were lost. Whether this loss was due to looters as spoils of war, or to having been sold to pay for needed items, as the family fortune had been tied up in useless Confederate currency, is unclear. At the end of the war, in 1865, Mary Cobb Sterling hired attorney William Drew Winter to help run the plantation, presumably with paid labor. William Winter married Mary Cobb's daughter, Sarah, and became both Mary's son-in-law and the heir to the Myrtles' estate. In 1871, a man approached the house and, while either standing near the steps or sitting astride his horse on the front porch, he called for William. When William appeared, the man drew a pistol and shot him dead. Sarah Winter died in 1878, followed by her mother, Mary Cobb Sterling, in 1880. The plantation was inherited by Sarah's son, Stephen, and was heavily in debt. Stephen sold it, and it passed through a number of hands until it was purchased by Harrison Milton Williams in 1891. Upon his death in the early 20th century, the plantation land was divided among his heirs. The parcel that contained the main plantation house and a few other buildings was purchased by James and Francis Kermine Myers in the 1970s, who turned it into a bed and breakfast. It was later purchased by John and Tita Moss, who continued to run it as a bed and breakfast, but also added tours, an event venue, and a restaurant to the services offered. Of course, one of the better-known services offered at the Myrtles today is ghost tours, and there is one particular ghost that is known to almost everyone, Chloe. Chloe was a young enslaved woman who worked in the house during the time that it was owned by the Woodruff family, consisting of Clark Woodruff, his wife, Sarah Mathilda, and their children, two daughters and one son. Chloe cooked and cleaned for the family and served their meals. As time went on, she became quite close to Mr. Woodruff, eventually becoming his lover. One day, as she was serving Mr. Woodruff and a group of his friends and business associates, Mr. Woodruff found her eavesdropping outside the door. The reasons she was listening vary from telling to telling, but regardless, Clark Woodruff was incensed and he cut off one of her ears to teach her a lesson. In addition to this physical injury, Chloe's duties were changed as well. She was set to do more menial tasks, with many tellings claiming that she was sent to work in the fields, while others say that she continued to work in the household, but in a less prestigious position. Chloe took to wearing a green turban to hide her mutilated ear, giving her a distinctive appearance among the slaves working on the plantation. Missing her position and, most of all, missing Clark Woodruff's affection, Chloe hatched a plan. 
She would bake a cake for the oldest daughter's birthday and lace it with a small amount of oleander to poison the family enough to make them sick, but this dose would not be enough to do any lasting harm. She would then be on hand to nurse them back to health and, she hoped, this would earn her their gratitude and would bring her back to the affections of Clark Woodruff. Unfortunately, she underestimated the potency of oleander, and Sarah Mathilda and the children died from the poison, while Clark Woodruff never ate any of the cake. It was quickly deduced that Chloe had been behind the poisoned cake, and Woodruff had her hung, and then had her body thrown into the river. There are, of course, variations. In some, Chloe is not Woodruff's willing lover, but rather is either raped or else gives in to his demands due to the slave and owner power dynamic, both of which are more realistic than the doomed romance angle that I so often see. In some versions, Chloe is listening because she hopes to relay information to other slaves regarding whether or not they will be sold, or because she's worried that she might be sent out of the house and made to work in the fields. And still others, she isn't listening at all, but instead is simply standing near the door and Woodruff assumes that she was eavesdropping. In some, Chloe bakes the cake knowing that it will kill the family and does so as an act of revenge for the harm done to her or as an act of resistance, one of the few ways that someone kept in slavery could truly do harm to the slave owner. There are versions, apparently more common in the 1980s, but less common now, in which she is seen not as a lover, but as a mammy figure, dark-skinned, maternal, and a stereotype rather than a person. And in these, she was listening in and had her ear cut off, but was not necessarily a sexual partner to her owner. And there are, no doubt, many other variations, but in all of them, Woodruff cuts off Chloe's ear. She bakes a poisoned cake that results in the death of Sarah and her children, and Chloe dies by hanging. Also, I have to say that Clark Woodruff is a right bastard. In the absolutely most whitewashed, best-case scenario version of this story, he's a married man who takes a lover and mutilates the lover over a minor infraction. In stories more in keeping with the truth of the pre-Civil War South, he rapes a woman and then kills her. He is often portrayed sympathetically in a, well, this is just the way things were back then, but he strikes me as a horrific sociopath, even in the mildest version of the story. Since her death, Chloe's ghost has been active at the Myrtles. There is a famous photograph that shows what appears to be a young woman of African descent wearing a turban, standing in front of one of the buildings. Guests staying at the Myrtles have reported waking up to see a woman in a green turban watching them, and then she quickly fades away. Chloe is often spotted throughout the grounds, never staying in one place for too long. Women often report losing only one earring, as if Chloe is either trying to accessorize her one good ear, or else is trying to remind others that she is present and has only one ear with an earlobe. The Myrtles keep the single earrings often found by staff members on display for visitors to see. Related to the ghost of Chloe, there is a mirror in the grand hallway that contains a handprint, possibly that of a child. In addition, there are streaks on the mirror that look as if liquid, possibly rain, or maybe tears, has dripped down inside of it. When the mirror is cleaned, sometimes the handprint and streaks vanish, only to reappear. And even when the mirror was re-silvered, it was only a matter of time before the handprint and streaks reappeared. As if that weren't enough, there are those who say that you can see the faces of two children in the mirror, allegedly the faces of Clark Woodruff's children, trapped in the mirror 
and not wanting to be forgotten. People report hearing the grand piano on the house's first floor play, often just striking one chord over and over again. When people enter the room to investigate, it stops, only to start again when the room is empty. If you look online, you will quickly learn that the plantation house was built on the site of a tunica burial ground, and there are those who claim that the ghost of a young Native American woman can be seen walking the grounds. Other tales state that a young girl died after being treated by a voodoo practitioner, and that her ghost haunts one of the guest rooms, and may work voodoo upon those who stay in the room. There are local stories that hold that the footsteps of an unseen man can be heard walking up the stairs in the main house, stopping at the 17th step, and legend holds that, after he was shot, William Winters staggered inside and climbed the stairs, falling into his wife's arms and dying on the 17th step. Another legend is that the house was ransacked by Union soldiers towards the end of the war. While I've been unable to confirm this, those who tell the story claim that the soldiers killed three people near the entryway of the house, and that there is a red stain on the floor that will not wash away. And, of course, there are numerous other apparitions said to haunt the Myrtles. I've already mentioned Chloe, but people report seeing men and women of all ages dressed in clothing from every period from the late 18th century up to the mid-20th century walking about. Each of these people will fade away before the witness's eyes, or vanish as soon as their attention is drawn away, naturally. Some are said to be the Woodruff children, or even Sarah herself, and some have claimed to have witnessed the spirit of William Winter. There are also stories of the cries of an always unseen baby, which is certainly a sound that would grab your attention. But as alluring as these other apparitions are, as creepy as the haunted mirror is, as unnerving and perhaps irritating as the spectral piano playing and phantom footfalls on the stairs may be, the star of the Myrtles is Chloe. People come from across the globe hoping to encounter Chloe, and some leave the Myrtles claiming to have had a chance. An important prop in the story is the now-famous photograph that I mentioned earlier that shows Chloe standing near the edge of the house. According to the accounts that I have read, tourists visiting the Myrtles will be shown a blown-up version of the photo in which her image is circled. Chloe has captured the imagination of visitors, and, according to Tia Miles, there is something of a fan community for Chloe of young women who view her as a romantic and even aspirational figure. Miles compares this to the way that Disney markets its princess characters as young women who have found true love and are worthy of admiration, which, given that Chloe is said to have been enslaved, mutilated, and then killed by her lover, is a very, very weird way to view her. But Chloe is the heart of ghost tourism at the Myrtles, with visitors hoping for a chance to meet her, spending a lot of money buying Chloe Kitsch, including dolls that bear more of an unfortunate resemblance to racist 1920s visual advertising tropes than to a real person. I realize that I'm editorializing a lot more than I normally would in this part of the episode, but the narrative of Chloe as a romantic figure is so deeply weird and, frankly, disturbing that I find it difficult not to. So, I suppose that brings us to the... Commentary. There is a weird synchronicity to the paranormal podcast world. 
it is surprisingly common for me to hit upon an idea for an episode, work on it, and sometimes even write and produce the episode, only to have another, usually much more popular, podcast release an episode on the same topic right around the same time. Usually it's just an odd coincidence, and I hope that listeners will consider that a lot of research and writing goes into these episodes. However, every now and again, the timing works out just right. This is a case where the timing worked out well for me. After reading Tia Miles' book, Tales from the Haunted South, I knew that I would be writing an episode on the Myrtles' plantation. Miles' description of tourism at the Myrtles made me angry and frustrated, and I began working on an episode intended to discuss the racism and revisionist history employed by people who tell stories of the Myrtles, especially of Chloe. As I began to sit down and do my research, another podcast, Monster Talk, released an episode in which skeptical paranormal investigator Matthew Baxter discussed the history of the Chloe story, which both debunked the tale and helpfully did some of my research for me. As I began a Google keyword search for some of the things discussed by Matthew Baxter, I came across the PhD dissertation of Holly Vaughn, who had done an ethnography of ghost tourism at the Myrtles. The stars were aligning, and as I learned more, I began to see just how complicated and, frankly, convoluted the history and politics of the story of Chloe really was. So this episode is coming out much, much later than I had initially intended, but will be much better than if I had begun writing when I first decided to. Now, as regular listeners know, it is not my usual pattern to debunk a story unless doing so reveals something interesting about the nature of the story. Well, this is one of those cases. So please bear with me as I take the story apart, because I think there is something fascinating to be learned once we have done that. Let's start with the history. Much of what I state in the first part of this episode is true, but much of it is not. First off, it helps to consider that most of the history provided revolves around the residence, but it is far from the only building on the grounds and isn't even the only residential building. The real events of the plantation played out across the house, other buildings, and the fields. The fields, of course, were the real reason that the plantation existed, and the fields were worked by slaves. The enslaved workforce lived in quarters quite different from the homes of the plantation owners and were kept in very poor conditions. Even after the Civil War, with the end of legally sanctioned slavery, agriculture in the American South remained dependent on a poorly paid and poorly housed underclass. This, along with long-standing assumptions about race hierarchies, as well as learned behavior towards non-whites, led to the formation of what would become known as the Jim Crow Laws. The antebellum plantation system may have begun to erode, but plantations remained, cruelty towards the black labor force of the plantations remained the rule, and even as some plantations were sold off or crumbled, others formed with somewhat different labor laws applying, those laws being that one could not, in fact, actually own the workforce as property, but could, and did, allow for a wide range of mistreatment. Under the Jim Crow regime, black workers, Former slaves, as well as the children and grandchildren of former slaves, would continue to work for low wages and poor boarding conditions up until the second half of the 20th century. The Civil Rights Movement, which reached its zenith in the 60s and 70s, did improve matters for black workers, but conditions remained bad throughout the South and much of the country through the 1970s and beyond. 
elements of the Jim Crow era still persist in muted forms today. And let's not forget that the civil rights movement polarized the country and frightened many whites, not just in the South. While it may seem as if I'm dwelling too hard on this, it is important to understand the evolution of ghost folklore at the plantations generally, and at the Myrtle specifically. To focus on this history is not beside the point, but rather, as will be shown, this history is the point of the folklore. Back to the specifics of the house at the Myrtle's plantation. Sarah Woodruff and two of her children did die, but of yellow fever, not poisoning, and not all at the same time. One of the Woodruff children, a daughter, survived into adulthood and outlived her father. William Winters was, in fact, shot on the porch of his home, but he did not stumble up the stairs to be caught by his wife before he died. It is entirely possible that Union soldiers did ransack the house, but it is also possible that the goods within the house were sold following the war to pay debts, and I was unable to find a good, reliable source that said one way or another. While it is possible that there is a tunica site that contains burials on the grounds of the current Myrtle's plantation, I have routinely heard such claims made at locations where I have access to the relevant data and have yet to find a haunting attributed to a Native American burial ground where burials were actually present. At locations where I can confirm that buildings were built upon actual Native American burials, I have yet to hear anyone claim that those buildings are haunted. So, I cannot say for certain that this claim of a tunica site containing burials is false, but I am highly skeptical. Much of the history provided by various sources for the Myrtles is, in fact, embellished and some details fabricated. Most of the deviations from historical facts seem to be built around simply providing a good background for what many call the most haunted plantation in North America and some would call the most haunted house in North America. While some elements were no doubt fabricated by property owners and others involved in the regional tourist industry, a subject discussed in some depth in Holly Vaughn's dissertation, others appear to simply have been elements of ghostly folklore that had developed and were capitalized on by the local tourist industry. So the real history is different, at least in the points that matter to the ghost stories, from what one is likely to find on most websites. Though I was delighted to see that it wasn't too hard to find sites with more accurate history. Similarly, the haunted objects like the piano and the mirror may not be all that they are cracked up to be. In two episodes of Monster Talk, linked in the show notes, the hosts and their guests discuss the mirror and draw upon the knowledge that one of them has of mirror making to make a compelling case that the mirror is likely just a poorly made mirror, specifically one that had chemical streaks and that was touched at the wrong time during the manufacturing process, leaving it with marks that neither cleaning nor resilvering would remove. Considering that the location is operated for some time as a ghost tourism site, there is little impetus to replace the mirror and its glass in its entirety or to otherwise improve the mirror. It has become a useful prop in the ghost tours. It is not unusual to hear that this mirror is the only object in the house that was present in the home at the time that the Woodruff family lived there. But then Holly Vaughn reported that every time she took the tour, a different item was identified as the only object in the house that was present at the time that the Woodruff family lived there. So some days the only object is the mirror original to the 1930s. Sometimes it's a chandelier, other times it's a couch, and so on. 
As for the piano, it is another object that is sometimes the only object dating to the period during the Woodruff family's time. So add it to the list of objects of rotating temporal appropriateness. Of course, even if the piano is a recent addition, that doesn't mean that a ghost isn't playing it. However, seeing that the piano stops making noise when someone walks into the room, that there is some clear inconsistency on the point in time when objects entered the house, and that, as I will explain shortly, there is clearly something odd going on with the stories about Chloe. Let's just say that I suspect there is more showmanship than supernatural at work. So, finally, let's talk about Chloe. People who have searched through the records for the house, from Tia Miles to Holly Vaughn to the folks at Monster Talk, have all reported that they can't confirm the existence of a slave named Chloe. Now, some would say that the name isn't Chloe, but Cleo. But you run into the same problem. There is no evidence for her existence. But, alright, you say, good records weren't always kept of slaves, so maybe she was there, but never written about. Okay. But the fact is that nobody in the Woodruff family died of poisoning. Sarah and two of her children died of yellow fever and not from eating oleander-laced cake. Clark Woodruff, while no doubt bereft, was not left childless. One of his daughters lived into adulthood and got married, and he would eventually leave the Myrtles to move in with her and his son-in-law. But, again, you might say... Chloe may not have killed anybody, and there may be no record of her, but you can't prove that she didn't exist, and it wasn't unusual for plantation owners to take enslaved women as mistresses. And sure, that's kind of true. But I don't know that you can really call sex with someone that you legally own and can harm in any manner of ways as taking a mistress. It sounds more like a pretty clear-cut case of sexual abuse and rape. But sure, it could be that Clark Woodruff was having sex with Chloe or perhaps Cleo, and it's possible that such a woman may even have done so willingly and may even have had some affection for Woodruff. There is historical evidence of genuinely loving interracial relationships in the pre-Civil War South, so it's not impossible. However, Historical evidence indicates that these loving relationships were very unusual, and relationships based on power and abuse of said power were actually the norm. And let's not forget that the stories about Chloe involve Woodruff mutilating her ear and abusing her in other ways before brutally killing her. So the story of Chloe, in its standard form, even when viewed through rose-colored glasses, is one of violence and abuse which makes the romanticizing particularly strange. Except, well, we can trace the origins of the story of Chloe slash Cleo. Kaya Miles reported that a 1941 tourism guide for Louisiana, a 1945 WPA volume of Louisiana folklore, and a 1961 book of plantation photography all describe the story of a French woman, possibly a paid servant or governess, whose ghost is often seen at the Myrtles. This French woman wears a green bonnet, not a turban, but green headwear nonetheless, and appears to be searching for someone. Up to this point, the ghost of the woman in the green bonnet, or sometimes a beret or other hat, was always that of a white French woman or, on occasion, a mixed-race woman. She was not generally implied to have been a slave. And she was one of several ghosts reported to be present at the house. This certainly seems to be the prototype of Chloe. 
Indeed, in the Monster Talk episodes I link to, Matthew Baxter indicates that this is Chloe, but she is given less prominence, simply one of many ghosts said to haunt the house. Things changed in the 1980s. Frances Kerming bought the Myrtles and turned it into a bed and breakfast, and in her memoirs, she wrote of the ghosts of the house. Taya Miles indicates that this was the first introduction of the ghosts of slaves into the plantation's spectral population, and it is likely the reintroduction of Chloe, the ghost in the green headwear, as the spirit of a woman kept as a slave. Over the next two decades, Chloe, or Cleo, became the most popular ghost at the Myrtles, and as it rose in popularity, both as a tourist spot and as a place for ghost seekers to visit, the tales of Chloe grew and elaborated. She came to be seen as a voodoo priestess or a practitioner of the African-American folk magic practice known as hoodoo. While voodooan, a syncretistic religion that merged Catholicism and West African religion, was common in Haiti and well-known in parts of Louisiana, it is more likely that the slaves living on this plantation, like others throughout the South, would have practiced hoodoo. Hoodoo, also known as conjure, is a complex set of folk magics practiced by many black residents of the American South. Hoodoo is an interesting topic in of itself and is certainly worthy of more space than I have to give it here. But regardless of whether or not it was present at the Myrtles, Chloe is a modern fictional creation and she could not, therefore, have been a practitioner. It is also worth mentioning here the ghost of the young girl who is said to have died after being treated by a voodoo priest. The ghost of this girl is said to work voodoo upon the people who stay in her room, and it seems likely that this story also gets conflated with the story of Chloe. But the thing about it is that the description of voodoo makes very little sense. It is not coherent with the religion of voodooan. And while treatment by a hoodoo practitioner would make sense if the girl were black and there was not a local doctor willing to treat her, the notion that her ghost works voodoo again doesn't make much sense. However, this is consistent with the treatment of voodoo, not the religion of Vodoan, but as a generic term for African-derived evil magic that has often been both conflated with hoodoo and has long been used in tourism in the American South to provide a sense of supernatural menace to otherwise mundane events. It has even been used to justify the wariness of black communities, as you just never know who might be an evil sorcerer. Regardless, you can usually disregard the historical veracity of such tales. Okay, so I have taken apart the story of Chloe. But now, you may be thinking, I have failed to account for the photograph, that famous photograph of Chloe's ghost. How can I say that Chloe doesn't exist when that photo is clear evidence? Well, have you ever looked at the photo? I mean, really looked at it. Not just glanced at it after someone told you that it showed a ghost, but taking a good, long look at it. Go to Google, type in Myrtle's ghost photograph, and you'll easily find it. Take a look. Does it show the form of a person? There's something there, certainly, but it's dark, it's grainy, and it's not clearly anything in particular. It could be a person, certainly, but Matthew Baxter makes a pretty compelling case that it also looks a lot like a 19th century stand-up laundry roller machine that is known to be on the grounds of the Myrtle's plantation. What cannot really be said, if you are being honest about what is in the photo, is that it clearly shows a person, much less a young woman in a green turban. And the story behind the photo is rather odd as well. 
Allegedly, one of the Myrtle's owners and its current proprietor, Tita Moss, took the photo for insurance purposes. When she sent photos taken of numerous angles of the house to her insurance company, the now-famous photograph was sent back and she was told she had to take it again because the insurance photos could not have any people in them. But Ms. Moss was certain that there had been nobody there when she took the photo. After a time, she linked the person in the photo to Chloe. Now, again, I am not convinced that there is a person in the photo, but let's say that there was. Why would the insurance company reject it? I am a homeowner, and I have insurance on my property, but the insurance company sent their own photographer out to document the house. They weren't going to trust me with it. While, to the best of my knowledge, the photos of my house don't have any people in them, I have met people who've told me that insurance photographers will sometimes ask for a person to be in the photo in order to help show the scale of objects. Now, admittedly, I live in California and not Louisiana, and my insurance is homeowner's insurance and not for a place of business. And I probably buy my insurance from a different carrier than Tita Moss does. It is possible that the whole thing went down just as Tita Moss claims. But I am skeptical. Ah, but there's the fact that the single earrings go missing. The hotel even finds single earrings that lack a mate and puts them on display. Okay, you may be asking, how do you explain that, Mr. Skeptic? Well, I have five sisters and a stepsister and a mother and a stepmother. Do you know how often I have heard women complaining about having lost an earring? Even on family trips, when everyone was doing their best to keep track of everything, it was not unusual for someone to lose an earring. So, sorry, the single lost earring thing is just not compelling. That happens all the time, even in places that are not thought to be haunted. Okay, so the story of Chloe slash Cleo is simply folklore that has changed over time. Great, Matt. You debunked it. Nice job killing off the magic in the world. What do I think I achieved? Well, by debunking the story and tracing its history, we can see something interesting at work in the way that the ghost lore has changed during the 20th and 21st centuries. But also, we can see how people's tastes in travel and entertainment have changed and how that maps onto other social and political factors. It should be noted that the 1940s marked the beginning of the modern civil rights movement, and as noted earlier, it reached a peak in the 1960s and 1970s. Taya Miles argues, and I am inclined to agree, that white people buying books about Southern folklore and visiting Louisiana as tourists may not have been too keen on considering that the literal ghosts of slavery were still present, still able to cast judgment on a system that, as transformed into Jim Crow, these same white readers and tourists were still benefiting from. Narratives that highlighted the white residents of the South and referred to slaves simply as servants, downplaying the presence of black people generally, and slaves in particular, seemed to go over better. In addition, during this era, as described by Elena Pirock in her writing on ghost stories associated with Southern homes, the focus tended to be on the invariably white, great men of the past, as well as more homely and comfortable specters. These iterations reinforced a view of the past that justified the present social order. So the ghost of white French women, well-dressed mixed-race governesses looking after white children, and the ghosts of children of unstated race but presumably white fit comfortably with this view of ghosts. These ghosts were spooky, 
but they didn't threaten one's social or political worldview, nor confront one with the complexities of the past. By the 1980s, things had begun to change. While many aspects of the civil rights movement had been a success, the success was far from complete, and many social forces were working to warp the truth of the movement and make it seem less radical than it really was. And so, through the 80s, we see Martin Luther King Jr. turned into something of a secular saint. His rough edges, sometimes troubled life, and often radical politics sanded down to make him seem like little more than a patient, kindly, and in many ways very conservative clergyman who simply stood up for what was right and was eventually listened to. We also see Malcolm X changed from the very complex and evolving person that he was into the very image of the scary radical who threatened the foundations of society. And we see the same flattening of other figures in the civil rights movement along with a flattening of past racial relations in the U.S. Slavery was bad, certainly, as was Jim Crow, but you know, it's all in the past and doesn't affect us anymore. We're past that. Can't you just let it go? But... Of course, we cannot let it go. Even those who wish to really can't. It nags at the backs of our minds and won't let us sit easily. Some people confront this, find out what they can about the past, and try to sort out how it impacts the present. Others put up a fight to deny uncomfortable truths about history, as we see playing out with the current moral panic over woke history. But no matter what you do, the past remains there, bubbling up. One way that this happens is in our ghost stories. In a world where we pretend to be past the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, we can acknowledge them through entertainment such as ghost tours and ghost stories. In doing so, we put it in the margins and make it something for a spooky night, not something for us to think about in the rational light of day. And rather than puncture the romantic view of the Old South that much plantation tourism seeks to create and maintain, we can put the ghost stories into a sideshow. Dr. Miles discusses this quite thoroughly in her book, Tales from the Haunted South, and I think she is correct overall. But I also don't think it's quite as simple as this. For try as many might to sideline talk of slavery by making it the focus of the spooky time tours for those with an interest in the weird, it nonetheless pushes some of it into the open air. First off, as described in the work of Elena Pirock, the ghost stories associated with Southern homes had long been associated with the great deeds of white men. While that could include their families or sometimes their household staff, such as the early non-slave version of Chloe, the stories still always reinforced the idea that these were admirable men doing amazing things. By focusing on the ghosts of slaves, these great men of history are forced to share space with those whom they owned and often abused to obtain and maintain their status. It's not perfect. The great men are discussed outside of ghost tourism more freely than those who were kept in bondage. But it is also not quite the case that the ghosts of the enslaved are being entirely pushed into the margins. This is made more clear when one considers that ghost stories hold a place of prominence in Southern culture that they don't in the rest of the U.S. Ghost stories exist everywhere, and most of the U.S. has the same ghost folklore, just altered slightly for any given region. However, both Dr. Pirock's writing and my own experience in talking with Southerners indicates that they take greater pride in their ghost stories than is present elsewhere, despite the stories really not being as different as many Southerners believe. 
the inclusion of slavery into Southern ghost stories, and the fact that this is one thing that is fairly unique to Southern ghost stories, makes it harder to ignore the place of slavery in their history. Now, again, I don't want to oversell this. The fact that history is so often warped through ghost stories can be detrimental to one's understanding of how bad it really was. The focus on romantic versions of the story of Chloe allows people to see slavery as being, perhaps, not all that bad. Just as Horatio Alger's stories give people a narrative that allows them to ignore the role that economic systems and manipulation of the law by the wealthy plays in the lack of real-world social mobility, so can a romantic version of Chloe's story provide a narrative that reinforces the idea of the noble southern gentleman caring for and even loving the slaves with whom he is charged, rather than the rather more violent and brutal historical reality. By shifting the discussion of slavery to ghost stories, the teller can also make such narratives harder to challenge with historical facts. Similarly, even the brutal ghost stories, including less romanticized versions of Chloe's, can create a way for people to inoculate themselves from the brutality of slavery so that they are less shocked and less disturbed when they encounter the historical reality. So, the movement of stories of slavery into Southern ghost folklore and its use in Southern tourism is a double-edged sword, both forcing people to remember historical injustices and their modern legacy, and also allowing them to buffer themselves against fully grappling with these issues. The format of the storytelling in Myrtle's tourism is also rather complex. Dr. Miles describes a black gay man who worked as a tour guide and used the story of Chloe as a way of drawing attention to injustices, reframing Chloe's life and actions as the activities of someone simply trying to survive in a hostile world. Her actions become seen and understood as those of a woman who had few choices and few places to exercise agency in her actions. At the same time, while Miles expressed a degree of interest and admiration for this young man's efforts, she ultimately found that it was not enough to counter the use of the suffering of slaves in money-making entertainment. Dr. Vaughn, by contrast, in comparing the efforts of multiple tour guides, found matters much more complicated. While Vaughn's dissertation illustrates the degree to which the entire St. Francisville area has attempted to downplay and even expunge at times the role of black residents and the massive antebellum slave workforce from their public history work, she acknowledges that the ghost tours are often one of the few places where slavery is discussed openly. She also found that different guides had different approaches that radically changed how the issue of slavery was considered by their audience. Dr. Vaughn provided multiple examples of tour guides and how they tackled difficult or uncomfortable conversations about slavery and race. At one extreme, she describes tours given by an older woman who routinely refers to slaves using the term servant. This woman would provide brief descriptions of rooms on the tour and seemed to be uncomfortable giving the tour in general. She seemed especially uncomfortable in discussing the racially charged elements of the plantation's history which is a problem in a place where slavery is the most significant aspect of its history. The guides seemed far more at ease discussing the more romanticized aspects of the plantation. 
Whether by intention or due to her ineptitude, this tour guide reinforced an interpretation that downplayed slavery, and in doing so made it seem more benign while treating the supernatural elements of the Myrtle's tourism, especially those involving slavery, as being the sort of thing that polite and proper people don't discuss. The story of Chloe was told, but in a hesitant and halting way that made it difficult to listen to and more difficult to take its horrors seriously. This seems very much in keeping with Dr. Miles' concern that the use of ghost stories allow slavery to be treated as something not worthy of being discussed in the vicinity of a grand old house, even in a grand old house that was part of an economic system dependent on slavery. Dr. Vaughn also discusses another tour guide, a young black man who I have to wonder might possibly be the same gentleman that Dr. Miles observed. This man would talk more openly and forcefully about slavery on the plantation, but he varied his approach with every group. Dr. Vaughn, though, reports that an approach he often took would begin by discussing slavery in the abstract, not naming specific slaves, and that he would get his audience repeating, in a sing-songy fashion, a set of lines about what would happen to slaves who were disruptive. Specifically, he took them to the trees, hung them by their necks, weighed their bodies down with bricks, and tossed them in the Mississippi. While this makes the audience uncomfortable at first when talking about abstract people, and specifically slaves, this tour guide is able to turn it into something almost playful, and the audience seemed to get into it after a few times, likely because having a young black man in a plantation lead them gave them a sense of security, a feeling that this was okay. And, after all, we are talking about something that happened a long time ago to people that we don't know. But then the tour guide turned to the story of Chloe, and rather than romanticize it, he described the brutality of the acts allegedly committed upon her. And I say allegedly not because the story of the violence is outlandish or unrealistic for the antebellum South, but because Chloe herself did not exist, and he focused on Woodruff as a monster for doing such things. Only after he had humanized Chloe and had his audience come to identify with her would he then describe her ultimate fate. He took her to the trees, hung her by her neck, weighed her body down with rocks, and tossed her in the Mississippi. With this, the sing-songy chant, which had started uncomfortable but become something that became playful when discussing abstract people long ago, becomes disturbing when discussing a specific person about whom the audience had just learned. The same tour guide would, depending on how respectful he felt the audience had been, sometimes reveal that his own ancestors had been slaves on this plantation, and that when the audience had been chanting along with him about abstract people of the past, they had been talking about the ancestors of him, the man standing before them. In this way, the performance, with its playful sing-song chant about the brutality of slavery, could bring an audience from being historically distanced from events to confronting the fact that the legacy of the past was still with them, and that they could easily be led into treating it more lightly than they should. In this way, Dr. Vaughn's description of the potential of ghost tourism at plantations, wherein it becomes a way of forcing people to consider the past and how it lives in uncomfortable ways, is quite different from Dr. Miles, who sees even the most daring and transgressive performance as still being inextricably enmeshed in a tourism industry that plays off human suffering for entertainment and profit. 
part of the difference in their interpretations comes from the fact that they are two different scholars coming from two different disciplines. Taya Miles is a historian and is focused on how people think of and interpret historical events. She is, as a result, very sensitive to how people's understandings of history can be manipulated and warped. Holly Vaughn is enmeshed in the performing arts and performed an ethnography of tourism as performance, both on the part of the tourist and on the part of the tour guides, and is therefore interested primarily in people's responses to performance and how the performance shifts their understanding of the world. But there is another difference in how both of these academics interpret the role of these tours and their effect on public historical knowledge. Taya Miles frames her discussion in a context that includes the American South and, by extension, the history of the U.S. generally. Discussions of slavery and subsequent racial injustice are a long-fought-over matter. At the time that I write this, we are a month out from the governor of Florida defending regressive education standards in a state by making public comments framing slavery as something that was beneficial to the enslaved. And a few years out from a member of President Trump's presidential administration describing historic black colleges as excellent examples of the benefits of school choice rather than institutions that had to be created because most colleges and universities excluded black students. And while these seem egregious to anyone with basic common sense, they are really just recent examples of a long-running public battle over how to reckon with the history of slavery and racism within the U.S., with this framing, plantations turned into tourist destinations that romanticized the antebellum South while relegating discussions of slavery to ghost stories, something not to be taken seriously, comes across as yet another example of the history of non-white Americans being marginalized. Holly Vaughn, on the other hand, frames ghost tourism at the Myrtles within the context of local historical interpretation in the St. Francisville area. She describes visits to the St. Francisville Historical Museum, where there is very little mention of non-white people at all, and where slavery is clearly and unambiguously downplayed. Local historic sites related to the black population are not kept up, and have often become decrepit, and are not as well marked as the plantations, nor represented well on local maps of places of historic interest. Much of the material available describes slaves, to the extent that it discusses them at all, as servants, and presents the plantation owners as a sort of new world nobility that got what they wanted simply because they were fortunate enough to have the financial means to purchase it, while glossing over that the necessary purchases included people as chattel. In this context, the very discussion of slavery, and specifically of a slave woman who is mutilated and killed, seems much more transgressive. It is the pin that bursts the bubble of the illusion of the genteel Old South, and a tour guide willing to lull a crowd into repeating a sing-song chant about the death of abstract slaves, and then turning that around to make the audience face the fact that they are talking about specific people instead is something that is far more disruptive to the sanitized view of the past than it might otherwise seem. Dr. Miles is right that the use of ghost stories in plantation tourism can and often does minimize the true horrors of slavery and does turn the real-life suffering of others into entertainment for largely white audiences. Even though Chloe wasn't real, events like those said to have happened to her can be shown to have happened to a number of real people. At the same time, 
Dr. Vaughn is right that the performance of the tour guide and the performance of rituals such as the chant that they can ring out of their audiences serve to force people to come face to face with the historical realities of slavery in a way that a more straightforward history lesson cannot. These two positions, though they seem contradictory, actually work together to describe different inevitable aspects of the use of ghost stories surrounding slavery on plantations where the modern population would prefer to pretend that slavery does not exist. While there are many ghosts said to haunt the Myrtle's plantation, Chloe gets the lion's share of attention, and perhaps that's as it should be. While the other stories, the haunted mirror, the various apparitions of past plantation owners and white residents, are interesting and even creepy, they are also of a type that can be found in any number of allegedly haunted locations throughout the country. While Chloe can be demonstrated to not be real, the fact that she has been created and that her story is so popular demonstrates that there is an uneasiness in how we view our past in general, and slavery in particular. If we try to ignore it, it intrudes through our folklore. If we try to confront it, the sheer size of it and the fact that it requires a view of humanity that seems in some ways alien to us now makes it difficult to grapple with. While I am inclined to agree with Taya Miles that it is a matter far too important to be left to ghost stories alone, and the use of these stories in tourism has some troubling implications. I also think that Holly Vaughn is correct that we should not dismiss the role that these types of entertainments can play in shifting how an audience thinks about, and perhaps more importantly, feels about, the suffering of people who had been kept in slavery. At the same time, we have to be watchful that the stories of those who suffered as slaves are not romanticized or given, as Dr. Miles puts it, the Disney princess treatment, rather than be grappled with and understood. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!